Hello, and welcome to this week's very special episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Before we start, I want to tell you that there are now two new series up and running on Patreon.com. Is the Mic Working is a set of interviews with prominent figures from the classical music world who chat with me about their experiences with conductors. And The Mic Test, where conductors return to answer a brand new set of 10 questions. The first episode of that series is with a real favourite of this podcast, Andrew Litton. Just go to patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium and for the price of a pint of beer you can subscribe to these two new series and a whole load more. In today's special episode I conduct a conversation with a Finnish conductor who has been a music director in both Finland and Sweden as well as being the current chief conductor of the BBC Symphony Orchestra. More importantly, for me personally, he was my boss at the CBSA for 10 years, as well as being a real supporter of mine at the start of my conducting career. It is a very great pleasure to welcome Zachary Oromo. Zachary, how wonderful to talk to you today. It's great to talk to you, Mike. It's been a long time, hasn't it? Um, I don't know how, how long it's been, but... Um, what's lockdown been like for you? I remember messaging you fairly early on and you, you were teaching, um, I would imagine, via Zoom and things like that. What have you been up to? Yeah, via Zoom, absolutely. So I started as a professor of conducting and orchestral studies at the Sibelius Academy sort of two months before lockdown started. <laughs> and of course, little idea had we then that what would come. And it was, uh, of course, quite a big shock at first uh, because we were working uh, with the conducting class orchestra and I felt I had gotten into sort of really good speed with the events and then suddenly everything was closed. Okay, we decided uh, that we would just carry on uh, with the studies, but via Zoom. So uh, I guess the studies went much more from the practical side uh, to the sort of analytical side discussing music, but also discussing conducting technique. And and I have to say, we also had wonderful sessions with masters like Herbert Blomstedt and Vladimir Jurovsky, Simon Young, uh, to name but a few, uh, during the spring. So it was, um, in many ways, a new experience for the students. That's great. Uh, I mean, I've done some private lessons on online with some of my private students, and it can be done, can't it? Especially if you're doing the analyticals, learning of scores, and even if you're, you can do it by sort of studying videos as well. Um, but yeah, it's not the same, obviously, as, as being in a room. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, I'm going to come back to your teaching later on, because there are so many things I want to ask you about that. Um, yeah, just just to come in with that, uh, <laughs> the only time when the Zoom really failed was when uh, we tried to. Uh, I decided, okay, let's try to conduct something together, <laughs> and we were going through uh, the third movement of Sibelius three of all pieces, mm. and uh, and uh, then we noticed how much the delay was, and and how sort of in different times because we were all, we had also people in different time zones and stuff, so it was impossible to do. But <laughs> otherwise, it worked quite well. I wonder whether we could go right back to the very beginning. How did music first come into your life? Were you, were you born into a musical family or were you like me? Did it come out of nowhere? It was actually pretty predestined for me. Uh, from my mother's side, especially, I come from a very musical family. Uh, so my mother is a concert pianist. Uh, she was the professor of piano at the Sibelius Academy at the same school where I teach now. And uh, I, I heard her practicing virtually every day at home. I 
played with my little toy cars under the grand piano when she was practicing. So I know pretty much most of the piano repertoire by heart, even if I haven't seen any, any music. Mm. And uh, my father also is a musicologist. Uh, he's done uh, lots of extensive studying of, for instance, Bartok's tonal structures, and uh, he's written a large scale history of Finnish music also. And, and, and so, yeah, music was pretty much always present. Also many of my cousins are musicians and my uncles are all musicians. <laughs> So uh, yeah, it, it came like as a as a sort of uh, birthright actually. <laughs> and what uh, what age were you when you first picked up the violin? Because like me, you're a violinist. Well, yes, I am. Uh, I, I first started violin lessons was I was about five, but somehow it didn't go very well. I, I didn't get along with my teacher, and uh, so I smashed my violin into the wall basically. <laughs> and then my parents realized this was maybe not a good idea, so. <laughs> We waited for a couple of years and then I started with another teacher when I was seven or eight, I guess. Uh, this was a really high quality violinist, Ari Angervo, who came and rehearsed with my mother because uh, she was accompanying him uh, in, in his recitals. Uh, and so he just like, as a sort of uh, after their rehearsals, he's starting to teach me uh, like clandestinely at first and then a little more openly and um, and that's where it all started and I stayed with him uh, for more than 10 years. Yeah up to was that up to when you went to the Sibelius Academy as a student I'm assuming you went there I, I couldn't work, find anywhere which told me where you went as a student but I'm assuming it was there. Well actually uh, Sibelius Academy has a youth department which I entered almost immediately uh, sort of maybe I was 11, 10, 11 years old, something like that. And, uh, and apparently when I had to do an audition to enter the youth department, I was so nervous that I, I turned away from the jury uh, <laughs> whilst playing. So I played basically my back facing the jury. Mm. And uh, that's been told to me as a story. I have absolutely no recollection of that. And uh, I must have been terrified. Yes. But um, anyway, yeah, it was sort of a, quite an interesting setup and it still exists. I mean, it's a part of, part of the academy, although the academy is a university, it has a very active uh, youth department, which kind of uh, collects the, the most promising talent from all of Finland to study mm. with the high quality teachers from a very early age. And therefore, I'm assuming it had orchestras. Um, at this early stage, I remember vividly the first time I played in a big symphony orchestra, and I knew immediately that that's what I wanted to do. Was that the same for you, or, or were you interested in chamber music or being a soloist, or how, how did you see your violin life panning out? I didn't have any plan, frankly. <laughs> I just went along, and, and there were orchestras, yes. Uh, there was mostly string orchestra activity. Uh, in the youth department, uh, it was led by two rather brilliant Hungarian brothers, Geza and Chaba Silvai, who had uh, come to Finland to, to basically to export the Hungarian school of music making and, and traditions and so on. And, and um, they were kind of very instrumental in, in most of the generation that is now active mm. uh, in Finnish orchestras and musical life. And, and, and so they uh, formed a symphony orchestra within the youth department in the academy. And uh, what was interesting is they gave a couple of us a chance to conduct also in a very early stage. So we stepped in front of our colleague students and started conducting just out of the blue without studying or anything. 
and uh, you can imagine what kind of sparkle that created in in the few of us that got the chance to do that this is fun this is not difficult Mm. And there was even at some point, there was a TV show, which was a kind of educational music show on Finnish television, um, which these two brothers uh, kind of uh, coordinated and led. And, and I had my public conducting debut <laughs> in that show at the age of 11, wearing rubber boots because it was a rainy day <laughs> and conducting an arrangement of a Hungarian folk tone. No, sorry, an arrangement of a Finnish folk song by a Hungarian composer. Yeah, wow, uh, an early debut. I think the, I think you win for the earliest public debut as a conductor um, on a TV show. Um, uh, wearing it, rubber boots. We're wearing rubber boots, especially. Yeah. Um, did did it st- stay with you from that point on, or did it not materialise itself again really until after you'd left uh, and gone out into the profession as a violinist? Now, in hindsight, it feels that it stayed with me, but I was thinking about it at the time. Um, there were kind of interesting and important uh, meetings, for instance, with Jukka Pekka Saraste, who was a sort of rising star at the time, and with whom I first played when I was, I guess, about 14 years old. Uh, that was actually my first time in a big symphony orchestra was Saraste conducting Sibelius II in a music course sort of thing where there was a mix of professionals and students in the orchestra. And uh, yeah, that was a pretty big experience actually. Not only the music, but also his way of sort of creating an orchestra out of really a bunch of very different uh, musicians and and players with different abilities. Mm. And that was very, very interesting. But I mean, I was still very much going for a sort of violinist career and uh, mainly perhaps as an orchestra musician, mm. as a concertmaster leader uh, and chamber music, of course, was also of, of interest. But there was the odd conducting thing as well, always in between. Um, for instance, when I was a um, member of the newly founded Avanti Chamber Orchestra, which still exists in Helsinki and which was based on sort of a young generation's willingness to to shake and to change the the musical landscape uh, mm. around in and around Finland, uh, and so uh, whenever there was a sort of uh, a contemporary piece that was maybe too difficult uh, to play without conductor, then I was asked to conduct, as were many of my colleagues as well, mm. and that sort of also created a kind of path towards then being able to step out as a as a conductor professionally which happened much later yes well uh, the the next big thing is becoming concertmaster with finnish radio symphony orchestra uh where i've i've actually seen i saw not so long ago a wonderful video of pavo berglund conducting tapiola and you're sitting number two in the first violins very young fresh-faced sacriomro there you are playing it's a wonderful performance what were those years like um and who do you remember coming up, other than the great Pavel Berglund, that you would look up and think, now, why are you doing this? Or why am I playing for you better than I'm playing for somebody else? Uh, did that happen? Yeah, it did, actually. I was in the orchestra um, as an alternating first concertmaster for about three years. Jukka mm. Pekasaraste uh, was chief conductor at the time. And, and of course, uh, his concerts were always special, as were Pavel Berglund's, yes, definitely. Uh, I remember also playing with Esapek Kasalon and Leif Segestam and uh, Jorma Panula. Mm. And uh, of more international names, I remember just a few, maybe Emmanuel Kivin has played the most in my mind. I mean, he was 
he was a magician uh, because he he was able to transform the orchestra sound completely. Mm. We played some French repertoire with him and and I just couldn't recognize the band. Wow. I mean, it was totally different orchestra just in a few days rehearsal. That sort of thing was interesting. But there were also no names, but there were also people whom I wondered, oh, why, why am I actually paying for that person? <laughs> because they were not worth it. And, mm. and uh, yeah, of course, as a young person, also you have very definite uh kind of uh, ideas of, of things and how they should be and if it's not quite like that then you are very critical yeah that's true uh, i look back on some of the opinions i formed when i first joined the cbs at 21 22 and think my god what were you thinking um and also uh, i've often said it on this podcast but also to people i've taught um or spoken to that I think I probably learned more from the bad conductors that I played for than the good from the good ones. You think, well, don't ever say that or don't ever do this. Um, the, the, you know, with the good ones, you, often you're, you're trying to work out why, as you said, they've changed the sound in three hours. How have they done that? That's more of a mystery yeah. than, you know, just yeah. you, you shouldn't have said that because you've really got me annoyed now. Um, uh, exactly. Yeah. Um, so at what point, well, I know you were age 24, you, you enrolled in the Sibelius Academy in the conducting course. Why, frankly? <laughs> I know you just said that you conducting had always been there sort of in the background and you think, think that's yeah. hindsight, but was there a trigger? Was there a reason you thought, you know what, I'm really going to find out what it was all about? And knowing you were going to be taught by Yorma Panler, what, what triggered it? Exactly that, what you said just a couple of seconds ago, I wanted to know what it's all about. And, and I wanted to know how a conductor, a professional conductor thinks mm. and what's the difference between my thinking and, for instance, Jorma's thinking or my fellow students thinking. And um, obviously it was uh, quite a sort of um, busy period in my life because I was having the job in the orchestra and in the weekends I was taking part in the conducting classes. And also our um, elder son, Tavi, was born in 1990. So uh, it was all kind of a very, very busy time. But I feel very, very positive, very productive, um, full of sort of discovery. Mm. And I think what Jorma did for me, Jorma Panula, this is um, the legendary Finnish professor of conducting, mm. um, he opened up a sort of uncomplicated uh, approach to music. His idea was basically it's all in the score, just do what it is and find out what's behind the score and just do it and no no extra sort of philosophies or or stylistic um, musings are needed. <laughs> you, you just go for it. And, and he gave the kind of practical uh, means to conduct an orchestra, you know, upbeats and, and uh, clarity and the way to speak to musicians and all that. Uh, and it somehow clicked with me very well. It, it didn't click with all the students mm. always, but in my case, uh, it was a very fruitful relationship, maybe because I had a tendency to become a bit too complicated in my, my sort of music making. I was thinking perhaps too much and, mm. and it made my kind of musicianship feel a bit difficult and cumbersome uh, mm. and, and stopped me from learning music as quickly as I wanted to. And he gave the keys. I mean, he was great in sort of seeing what a student actually needed. And he didn't offer anything beyond that or anything extra. You had to be sort of the musicians you want to be already yourself. Yes. But yeah. he just gave you the keys how to do this job and how to sort of manage and, and get out alive. 
<laughs> I mean, on, on your recommendation, and I should be ever thankful that you recommended me to go to him. I went to him, and as you know, and studied with him for two weeks, and and he already in that short time um, got everything that I was doing. Sort of this, you know, I was conducting like a stabbed octopus. There were arms and legs going in all directions, and he sort of brought it down into a into a much more cohesive way uh, and and simplified everything. But you were with him every weekend or for over four years and saw, I mean, I've asked others this, who were a bit like me, I either went on a short course or did a little bit longer, but he, some people find it very difficult to put a finger on his style of teaching. They basically, he never really says anything and he's just sort of the odd word here and there. Um, I remember you telling me a wonderful story about how he stopped somebody bending their knees in in a class. I mean, whether yes. whether you could tell me that story, tell us that story, but also whether there were other things he he did over those years that you remember um, that were particularly Yormeresque. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one thing I remember very very vividly is that um, when some of us had the sort of habit to bounce uh, yes. without a beat, so sort of with our feet so he put some small toy horns uh, under our feet <laughs> and basically every time you bounce there was a bang sound. it's brilliant isn't it <laughs> it is it is and also uh my head wasn't independent at the time so i i did this when i conducted i i sort of moved my head along with with the beat or slightly maybe out of time even and and then he just said uh oh you're a terrible goose <laughs> and I never did it again, you know. <laughs> and and of course, yeah, Yorma's style of teaching, um, he's not a man of many words, not a man of many languages. Um, but in a way, he kind of amalgamates uh, a conductor that has the masterful way of using his hands and also of sort of telling everything with his hands. And I have to tell, I just, a couple of weeks ago, uh, literally, I, I saw him conduct again after a long, long time. Mm. It was around his 90th birthday, and um, he just did one movement of the Tchaikovsky String Serenade, the Elegy. And uh, I was just thinking, I, I had forgotten how, how fantastically expressive hands he has mm. i mean one remembers him as a sort of conductor who never rehearsed very much he let people go home very early and and sort of but but these hands i mean they are so expressive still at 90 they look like young young man's hands and and the way he shapes the music um uh, and at the same time gives it clarity and transparency it's maybe something that has kind of become most clear now at his his old age. Well, I, I remember him vividly saying some one of the other students asked in particular why he didn't conduct with a baton. He said, "Why use one baton when I have ten batons?" Um, which was a very, <laughs> very, very Yorma line. But it's true when you saw him on the rare occasions he stood up and he conducted or he showed us something, you looked at his hands and you just thought, "Oh wow, how how expressive, how he's." Seems to be able to mould the sound with just his, his fingers. He studied in Paris with Albert Wolf, who was mm. a sort of um, already quite elderly man, I think, at the time. And I think through Yoroma, this kind of tradition, funny enough, of, of old French style of conducting has sort of been uh, been brought to up to our days. Mm. Mm. I mean, and I found that really interesting. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's 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 also even you know if you look at his pupils, not many of them have taken on the ten batons instead of one. Most of his pupils, you know, long term pupils like yourself, they all use a baton. Um, one wonders why that might be. Um, is it because orchestras prefer conductors with batons rather than without? I don't know. I mean, I know speaking to my colleagues in the CBSO, many of the wind and brass players seem to prefer a baton. I, as a string player, couldn't care less. I don't know what you yeah. think. Um, well, yeah, I, I can see that. Uh, and maybe there was always a danger of, of sort of feeling like you look like Yorma when you yeah. conduct if you don't use a baton. Yeah, in the first yeah. place, and and uh, and also a lot of the feedback that I got from from my colleagues then in the Finnish radio orchestra when I started conducting them more, um, especially as you say, wind and brass, maybe also percussion players, was that yes, you can conduct very well without a baton, but the baton is a sort of magic wand that mm. makes us play in a unified way, and I kind of I had a very strong um, experience that that was really was the case mm. and at least that group reacted so much better and more with ease uh, to the baton but now i'm i'm constantly finding myself throwing the baton out at mm. some points and <laughs> and just not using it but but i do like the feeling of of a baton in my in my hand i i, I have a feeling that it's a kind of it's a continuation of the ten fingers in a way, mm. and uh, and and it can be used in so many different ways. And that's what I'm also trying to bring to my students: that you can do with or without, but you have to do it in the in a way that sort of uses the baton in a proper way. Mm. Well, I've gone on record. Just... <laughs> yes, not not just beating. I, well, I've gone on record as saying that um, in answer to the ten questions, um, who, who my favourite current conductors are, I gave the answer. The three music directors I played for on the CBSO, and I and I will stand by this in the fact that your beat is the clearest of any beat of any conductor I have ever worked for, and especially showing the next tempo, which is one of the hardest things we have to do. Uh, and yeah. so, yeah, I think you, the magic wand that that you use when you do that is so useful, especially in bigger pieces where the orchestra is much bigger and more spread out. That's one of the hardest things, and. and I know I always knew what the next tempo was and that's that's no easy trick. And go so you as you said it's a busy time you're you're in your job you're you're conducting and learning with Yorma and then not long afterwards you get to stand in uh, to late notice uh, in your own orchestra, which of course is something I've done and you know, you know about. Uh, with the Finnish Radio Symphony Orchestra, you stood in. Uh, how much notice was it? Um, and what was the program? Like two days. So oh, wow, right. Two days notice. Uh, I was going to play in the program and, and uh, it was uh, Brahms' first symphony, which I had conducted a couple of months before in my sort of exam from the Sibelius mm. Academy with a student orchestra and, and gotten terrible reviews, by the way, <laughs> in the press, especially from one critic who was quite notorious. Uh, it was Schumann Cello Concerto with Tourette Den, And it was, I think it was the orchestral arrangement of the three Hungarian dances, Brahms, to start the program. So I, I was kind of not totally unprepared mm. to do that program. And uh, 
so what happened is I, I came Monday morning for the rehearsal with my violin and I saw the, the manager sort of running up to me and, and saying, oh, the conductor's gotten ill and you have to conduct now. And could you conduct now? And, and, and sort of I, I took up the rehearsal initially. Mm. That, 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 that was what was agreed. And then after the rehearsal, I was told uh, they would like me to conduct the concert. And, and of course, I, I felt sort of the pressure but on the other hand, I, I knew everyone so well, and they were very supportive. And after that, I never kind of looked back anymore. I mean, mm. it was it was a, a big experience, really. And they gave you a title. They gave you co-principal conductor. Uh, was that immediately afterwards, or not long afterwards? Not long afterwards. Mm. Yes. Uh, so Yuka Pekasaraste was still chief conductor for quite a number of years after after that. But um, he felt he needed kind of someone to sort of re rely on bringing the orchestra on when he wasn't there because mm -hmm. he was at the same time in Toronto and he did a lot of traveling. Um, and I was very happy to take that position because I knew exactly what I wanted to do with the orchestra. Mm. And, and from, did you then stop your job as a player or did you ever run it concurrently like I did for nine years? But um, at what point did you think, right, I've got to stop playing and just be a conductor now? There was a tipping point when I realized that uh, it's not fair for me to keep the job as a concertmaster when I didn't intend to stay in it. Mm. And, and um, it happened, I guess, certainly not as long uh, <laughs> a time as you. I remember you, you, did, you were still, still in the orchestra there and, and conducting here and there and everywhere uh, in mm. the time. And, and I found that really, really exciting. Uh, but uh, for me, it was getting a bit too much already quite quite soon mm. so I stopped in the job I guess it was in 92 or something mm. like that and uh, and then went on more or less full-time conducting mm. so your guest conducting uh, 95 you get principal guest conductor for the Austro-Bothnian Chamber Orchestra uh, and also you've, you've, you've had various positions with over the years um, right through uh, 2013 they made you artistic director um, then uh, a rather important date and I was on stage and I remember looking at my schedule and thinking right who's this Japanese guy coming in <laughs> and I know quite a few people who said who's the who's this Japanese guy anyway you walked in you obviously weren't Japanese um, and you started conducting Don Juan with us in 1996 I think it was five. I think it was five May 1995 right. yeah. yes and within oh I I mean, all right, I was playing Don Juan, which is not easy, as you well know. But most, pretty much by the bottom of the first page, I was already thinking, my God, this guy's good. Where's he come from? Um, that was your first time with the, the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra. And yeah, it sort of blew, blew us away. We were just uh, absolutely amazed. How was that for you, that first uh, occasion? Yeah. Well, it was actually not only my first time with the CBSO, but it was also my first time with a major UK orchestra. Yeah, yeah. And actually a major orchestra outside Scandinavia. I had conducted the Danish radio symphony, Swedish radio, Stockholm Phil, uh, Oslo Phil for a couple of times. But, but this was really the main uh, first, first uh, like important gig outside Scandinavia yeah. or Nordic, Nordic countries. And uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, 
obviously I felt immediately this is wow this is the best orchestra I've ever conducted I mean the winds they play in tune they sound <laughs> wonderful and and they are all kind of coming along very quickly and mm -hmm. and this, uh, on the program there was also the lemming kind of legends by Sibelius mm. which hadn't been done as a whole for a long long time maybe ever um, by the orchestra and it was a kind of yeah it was all done very quickly but I remember the atmosphere was incredibly good mm. and sort of pro productive quick uh, interesting musically and and uh, and I actually had very little idea where I was coming. I mean, I, I, I had been to one of the Oxtran Rattles concerts in Helsinki, in the Helsinki Festival, some years earlier, um, without sort of entertaining any idea that I would one day conduct them, you. But, um, but it was sort of still um, quite a sort of naive, uh, maybe unaware position where I was. <laughs> Because oh, I no. didn't quite know where I was, and Birmingham it didn't mean so much for me. I, I, yeah. I knew Aston Villa, but that's about it. Really. <laughs> well, I mean, maybe that's a good thing. I mean, you know, when you're going to an orchestra, um, uh, and I don't even know whether you knew that the the job was up, or the job was open at the time. I, I don't know. Maybe you can tell me. But at the time, you know, no, but, I, I had no. no idea. No. So, you know, when you go in there and you're fresh-faced and you're naive and you think, where's Birmingham? What is this? Uh, the other thing I wanted to ask is that, do you also think it's a, it's a, a positive thing when you're a guest conductor and you're, and you're going somewhere for the first time to do something, in your case, like the Lemminkine and Legends, which I would say of those four legends, the orchestra probably played the Swan and maybe the Lemminkine's return as an encore yeah. with Pavel Berglund, yeah. but never the first two. Would that be a positive bonus for you to go in there and go, well, I know this stuff backwards. You don't. I can teach it to you and I can just, you know, get my hands dirty and get working. Was that a positive thing, do you think? For me, certainly it was. Yeah. And, and it, it's nothing to do with the fact that I'm finished and Sibelius was finished. No. It's not the finishedness. It's more the sort of continued exposure to that music that yes. I had had already. I'd played it with Paolo in the orchestra many times. I'd played it with some other conductors as well. Um, and uh, it was just like some, something which was very much in my blood already. And uh, I know this is a controversial because I'm saying it's not the finishedness, but it's more like being sort of subjected to the, that particular music and then bringing it somewhere. And uh, I've had the same feeling with that piece with a lot of significant orchestras, although they haven't been my debuts, but but uh, when I did it with the uh, Staatskapelle Dresden some years ago, it also fled, felt like um, a completely unique experience. Uh, yeah. And the same also with the Berlin Philharmonic just two years ago. Uh, that was, a, I that felt was a staggering I, performance. I really enjoyed that. Um, I watched yeah, it. Yeah. I, I, I have a feeling also that it, it was, for me personally, it was one of my greatest experiences as a conductor. Mm. Not necessarily during, during the rehearsals. They, they were sort of, Difficult, cumbersome, a bit slow. Uh, the rehearsal process felt like that, but in the concerts, I felt it came really well together and yeah. and in a sort of exciting way. And um, and yeah, so I think in some cases it can be really, really good. But of course, I've also had opposite experiences. Um, uh, for for instance, when conducting some Hindemith pieces with the German orchestras that had not played them. Oh. Uh, and that music is different in a way. It's maybe not so familiar for me. And 
And uh, I mean, of course, I had sort of studied the scores very well, but it didn't feel like it was gelling in the way that the Sibelius was. Mm. And, and uh, it's maybe also a lot to do with the character of the music. Mm. I mean, Hibbemit doesn't allow so much input. Yes. Uh, Interpretation-wise, it has to be done very correctly and, and with a lot of power and robust uh, feeling. But it's not, it's not the same as Sibelius, where you, you have the, the legend on top of everything, mm. which kind of covers the music in its, in its glory, if it's successful. Mm. Well, of course, after that first date with us and the Lemminkana legends, in 1998, you become, um, I think you did, you start as principal conductor, but not long afterwards, you became music director. Or, uh, and 10 yeah. wonderful years. I, I was just before I, I pressed um, the email to send you for the Zoom meeting, I thought, I wonder, and I think mathematically, probably I played more concerts for you than anybody else. And I remember a lot of them. Uh, doing things like the, the Flute Festival, which was a contemporary music festival with a wonderful name, um, discovering John Fold, Elgar, of course, oh, all sorts of things. What were your highlights? Lots of things, yeah. yeah. What were your highlights? What were your um, your your biggest memories of that time with us? And uh, yeah, tell me what you what you remember and what you liked and what you loved. It was a sort of very great learning curve to me, and mm. and not to say that I didn't feel. I was ready for the job. I felt I, I was ready and I knew what I wanted to do with the orchestra. It took a while to sort of persuade everyone, the players, to, to sort of go along with it. But I think very early on, I remember in the first season already, we did a Bartok Divertimento uh, mm. with the strings, which uh, kind of, for me, it opened up the, the possibilities of that string section yeah. in a sort of new way. and. And uh, there was a lot of sort of development in the way I wanted it to be, and, and that was great. But then from the later years, so I, of course, remember Flute Festival very well, because it was, um, in a way, it was my brainchild. And, and it was uh, five days, I think, uh, yeah. of just wall-to-wall -wall contemporary music. Nothing written before 1980, I think, was, was on the program. And, and it was both uh, symphony orchestra concerts, but also concerts with the contemporary music group. And, and the whole got its name from Esa Salomon's piece, Flute for Soprano and Ensemble, which was also, also performed. Yeah, I mean, there, there was pr practically no audience. I mean, there were sort of <laughs> maybe 50, 60 people in symphony hall, but it all felt still very, very worthwhile and, mm. and, and amazingly, uh, I don't know, productive in many ways. And then, of course, I remember very vividly uh, getting acquainted with Elgar and particularly Elgar's oratorios, uh, Dream of Guarantees first, which I actually stepped in for Simon Rackle uh, in my first season. Oh. So I, as a music director, or chief conductor at that time, stepped in for the ex-music music director uh, in Guarantees, and, and I had to learn it quite quickly, but, it, but it was, um, it's been a piece that sort of followed me all along. And here, I, of course, I must mention the chorus as well, the Civil mm. Premium Symphony Chorus, along with the orchestra, with whom I had a fantastic journey uh, of sort of wonderful things together. And I, I remember always being filled with joy and filled with a sense of breathing and air when I conducted the chorus. Mm. Uh, it's, a, it's just a different apparatus somehow. And uh, and then, of course, we did this crazy uh, 
weekend festival of the three Elgar oratorios on consecutive days, which I think was pretty miraculous uh, the way it came out because none of the soloists, and I mean, there were like 12 soloists involved, none of them canceled or became even ill. Um, and, and it was uh, sort of a weekend to remember really. And there were many other things. I mean, I've, I've gone back to the Sibelius symphony recordings that we did. And I still find them really fresh and, and good and interesting. And I mean, they were done actually ad hoc because I remember the first uh, symphony recording with the second and fourth symphony came along when a recording with Carita Mattila, the soprano was canceled. And we had the dates, we had the hall, we had the orchestra, we had the production team. We just didn't have the soloists. So let's record Sibelius symphonies. Yeah. <laughs> and it all kind of came along without a plan actually. Mm. And that's the best way. Well, when I recommend Sibelius symphonies to anybody, I always recommend that set. I'm not a, you know, one of these CBSO biased people who says, oh yeah, you must listen to the CBSO recording. I listen to all sorts. But, but that, that set, as you said, there's a freshness about it. Um, I particular, I mean, the last Sibelius symphony I conducted was number three, and I loved that recording, listening to that again mm -hmm. recently. Um, the, what, my one regret, because as I said, I played hundreds of concerts for you, was, was that I didn't do that weekend. I was actually away conducting uh, when you did all of the Elgars, um, because I, yeah. I would have loved to have done that, um, to have experienced that weekend. Um, but yeah, I, did remember, I remember the string sound changing particularly, and, and, and feeling a, being allowed to play more. I know that sounds like a funny thing to say to a, a non-orchestral musician if they're listening, but there are, you know, sometimes you, of course you play, of course you play loudly, but you, when you're just allowed to make your own sound and then um, fill it, also the string sound became bassier, I thought. Maybe I'm yes. right, maybe I'm wrong. Um, oh, which you're, I, you're right. I loved. I right. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you're right. And, and I wanted it to be sort of very flexible according to the music that we yes. played also. And not one sound for everything, but but different sounds. And, yes. And and of course, um, the sort of the feeling that I have is yes, I I did sort of work best with the string section in a way because I had the hands-on experience on that and and it felt really right. And I always found the, the wind and brass musicians of the orchestra superb and, and percussion and the harpist Rob Johnston, <laughs> if he listens, uh, big greetings also. Um, uh, and it was all in all, it was a great, great group. And of course, we went through some difficulties uh, financially at the yes. time. You must remember stabilization. Yes. And all that <laughs> yeah. Procedure. Yeah. And, and, and I think, uh, I mean, I had so little experience of, of any of that actually at the time, mm. sort of working in an organization which was subject to sort of negotiating with, with donors and, and the Arts Council and all that, it, it was also new to me. And, mm. and in a way, I would have maybe appreciated uh, a sort of dummy's guidebook to the <laughs> British music financing system or whatever it could be called. <laughs> you know, yeah, one but, of those yellow, yellow yeah, books. Yeah, <laughs> I, I know exactly the books you mean. The problem is that, um, that there'd always have to be an extra chapter written at the end for, you know, well, actually the rules have now changed to this and now the rules have, but those rules are gone and now the rules have changed to this. Is it, they seem it's to just move... called a di disclaimer. Yeah, exactly. Disclaimer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Read the book by all means, but at the end, none of it or all of it may be true. Um, <clears throat> exactly. And it was sort of just somehow very important to, to hold up the morale of the players yes. during that time. Mm. 
and, and we did that through music. I yes. remember um, one of the, the the sort of older violinists, Paul Smith, speaking up in a meeting and saying, "We've never been strong on cash, but we've always been strong on music." Mm. That meant a lot to me. Yes, and I still carry this idea with me. Yeah. Hello, Paul, if you, if you listen to this. <laughs> well, it, he lives uh, about a two-minute walk around the corner from me, um, so, and I often okay. bump into him um, when he's walking around the round to the local shop, so I will pass on your regards. Um, you must say hello, yeah. I must do, yeah. But he's right, um, going back to your point in the fact that, you know, there, there are different types of conductors, and, and going back to this, this thing to do with, is it politics, is it funding, call it what you will. Now, some conductors feel they must get very hands-on and they want to go and bang on the door of the Arts Council and be a politician. And other conductors do it in a different way. And as if, to, you know, it, it, let other people do that job. My job is to make the orchestra sound as good and if not better than the possible. And so if you're not going to listen to my sentences talking about politics, at least listen to what we're doing musically, you know, and I think that's equally as important or equally, you know, equally important approach. Um, you know, I think you, you were coming in from that angle. I know Andrus came at it from that angle after you, you know, he, everything was about the, you know, keeping, pushing and pushing the, the, the ceiling up so that the orchestra just kept playing better and better and better. Um, not everybody yes. can be a great, you know, great at politics and, and all of the, you know, the banging on the on the politicians' doors. Maybe if you work in the States, you have to be, you know, shake the hands of donors yes. more often. But over here, it's different from country to country. Yeah, and I, I guess, I mean, we have to realise as conductors that we're not living sort of in a separate bubble. We have to be part of the society that we work in and that we work for in many cases. And, and of course, learning about how it works in different countries is one of the most interesting aspects of mm. the profession. And I, I really enjoy it. I mean, I, I find it very, very interesting. But just at that point with the CBSO uh, then being in, in sorts of difficulties financially, uh, it was just somehow so, so new, so inconceivable. How can an orchestra of this quality be in such difficulties? Mm. We were even talking about selling the grand pianos and all that. And, yeah. and that was like, yeah. But the organization came out of it brilliantly. Yes. And, and, uh, and uh, I felt the sort of lift then also artistically after that process. You've just mentioned serving the community. Um, I'm going to come back to Royal Stockholm in a minute because really from 2003, almost since then, you've been a, either principal conductor of the Finnish Radio Symphony Orchestra, your old orchestra, or at the BBC Symphony Orchestra. So radio orchestras which are serving the community via radio and not necessarily via ticket sales and, and all of that sort of stuff. What is it about radio orchestras that you like? Uh, I mean, I suspect there's an element, because I know you love contemporary music, of being able to just play anything and everything, also neglected masterpieces or things like that. What's that been like, the last sort of 17, 18 years of working with radio orchestras? Yes, uh, that's an interesting point. And, and of course, uh, as you mentioned, being able to be have the freedom to program almost anything is, is, uh, is great about them. And... And I feel that also my time with the Finnish Radio Symphony Orchestra as, as a chief conductor uh, then kind of prepared me also for my 
next job as the chief conductor of BBC Symphony Orchestra, because uh, of course they work differently in parts and, and the organizations are very, very different. The BBC is a huge, huge <laughs> media organization and Wiley, the Finnish product broadcasting company is, is much smaller, but of course it's, it's a very high quality, high quality institution culturally also. And, um, but I, I felt sort of when I started with the BBC that I, I had kind of the tools to to work with the radio orchestra in a way, and um, what I also find find really great is that your work is documented. Properly. Mm, mm. That that every concert is somehow I'm able to listen to all the concerts, listen mm. back, and and make my own judgments and and how it worked and also listen to other people conducting my orchestra even though i'm not in the same city i'm not present i do follow uh follow the recordings eagerly and 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 i just think it brings something uh, it brings another kind of dimension to to my work because mm. i'm more informed of what's happening even though i'm not always there mm. It's almost like, almost like um, you know you've got the ability as a, a manager of a football team is that you know you when you're not there uh, you get to watch replays of the of the team playing you know you you can hear what your orchestra's playing like in the weeks when you're not there um, which I've never yeah. really thought about I think that's that's a very important thing isn't it and you can probably because you know your own orchestra so well you can probably hear when they're playing for somebody really well or when they're maybe struggling yeah. for somebody um, and that, absolutely yeah. yeah I think that's very interesting. Um, uh, before we leave radio orchestras, uh, last night the proms. I've always wanted to ask you because I've not spoken to you. <laughs> How was that for you? Um, and especially the, giving the famous speech. Um, was it was it something that you fretted about or worried about, or was it you know, knowing you? Do you just take it in your stride? I've done three last nights to date, and and I feel the speech has gone better each time. Um, <laughs> Uh, of course, it's the thing as a conductor is that we're not trained to do. Actually. Yes, exactly. Yeah, we yeah. don't seek yeah. to be trained to, to give a speech. And mm. to give a speech in front of, of course, that audience of about 6,000 in, in the Albert Hall, but also the millions that watch it mm. in various parts of the world, uh, is uh, it is frightening. Mm. It is frightening. And also because I'm not speaking in my native language, uh, no matter how well prepared I am, I'm always going to feel that I have to formulate extra clearly mm. just mm. to be sort of uh, understood. Um, it's pretty interesting that many people think, you know, the conductor just comes there and speaks, but it's actually very well prepared. Mm. So uh, there's a sort of compulsory part of the speech that you have to do and you're expected to do. And, and, and it's fine because it's uh, part of the tra tradition. And then there's a sort of maybe one minute, one minute and a half of, of sort of personal time mm. where you can give your own insight on something, uh, an issue that you want to talk about. Uh, I've taken up music education and, and so on. And it's actually a very narrow window of sort of personal <laughs> input, yes. if you like. But I've, I've always felt supported yeah. with my speech. I felt I could sort of bounce it back and forth to, to the management and, and, and we've been able to talk, talk through what, what is sort of suitable and, and, and what is productive to, to say. And uh, I've also had some help with the pronunciation and language and, and that sort of thing. And it's, it's, 
I'm looking forward to the next one. <laughs> Although I don't know what, when it will be in these no. circumstances. So, so I, I think there will be a fourth, certainly, yeah. at some point. Yeah. Interesting you said that you get help with pronunciation. Don't you speak something like five or six or seven languages? Uh, I remember you giving a uh, giving an education concert to an audience in France somewhere on Beethoven's Eroica mm -hmm. Symphony in fluent French. And just sitting there thinking... So he conducts like that. He speaks, well, you know, German, Finnish, English. Now he speaks French. What other languages have you got? Um, yeah, interesting that you would need pronunciation help. <laughs> yeah, it's more like, more like sort of uh, speaking slowly enough and giving yes. the right words, emphasis, mm. in the most possible BBC way. <laughs> yeah. that, that, that's what it is. I mean, yeah. I and and don't drop it. in I'm... any words in a Birmingham accent either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe as a joke it could be, but then I don't want to offend anyone. No, no, no. Either. <laughs> um, before I go on to teaching, um, you've been uh, up till now 12 years um, as chief conductor and artistic advisor of the Royal Stockholm Philharmonic Orchestra. And what sorts of orchestra are they? Um, are they particularly Scandinavian approach or would you call them a European approach? Um, you obviously love each other because, you know, you, as I said, you've been there 12 years. Um, what are they like? Yeah, my relation with the Royal Stockholm Phil is uh, it started very early on a long long time ago already and i had been sort of entertaining the idea of becoming their chief conductor already before i was appointed to the cbso but mm. that didn't quite happen at the time and but uh, then when i sort of finished my time with the cbso then then it felt only natural to 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 sort of go to Stockholm and, and relive this old love that I had <laughs> and, and we had, uh, I think, mutually between the orchestra and myself. I don't know, there's something very, very special about Finnish people in Stockholm's cultural life. Mm. Because not only in music, but also in theater, for instance, uh, there have been sort of significant uh, Finnish people uh, leading important organizations in, in the arts in oh. Stockholm. and. There's a kind of long unbroken tradition of that. Not that the Swedish society thinks that it's only a good thing. Maybe there is something also of a sort of, uh, of an attitude uh, towards that, that feels not quite comfortable in a way. But for me, uh, my relation with that orchestra has been constantly a sort of a wonderful artistic journey. And, um, you're asking about the orchestra style. I mean, it has a distinctly Scandinavian sound, I think. Um, and, uh, but it also relates very strongly to the sort of European style of, of playing. And, and obviously all orchestras are quite international nowadays. I mean, yeah, there are yeah. many people who have come from abroad, including uh, three Finns also in the orchestra. And uh, in a way, it's it's an international group, but still predominantly Swedish uh, from the background background of the musicians. Yeah, it's been a sort of growth together mm. this time with them. And what I particularly like is Concerthus at Play, which is a sort of um, uh, on-demand streaming service mm. where they put performances properly filmed from concerts uh, online, and they stay there. I mean, in this sort of database of performances for a longer period so 
so this is a way to to spread our work uh, much wider and and to get get noticed and get attention because what that orchestra lacked when i started was an international profile mm. they didn't really travel that much we've done quite a few tours now and uh we were supposed to do one actually pretty soon now in october 2020 but it was obviously mostly cancelled yeah. uh, i'm really glad that we are able to do three concerts in the musikverein in vienna Wow, uh, which is a sort of return there. We had we had uh, two previous gigs with me, and also I think with my predecessor Alan Gilbert there. And it, it's been um, a sort of uh, yeah, it's been a great relationship, and I can see it coming to a natural end uh, at the end of this season. Uh, but I will obviously carry on yeah. working with that orchestra regularly. As you know, I had a conducting lesson with you many, many, many years ago, and we went through some scores. And then you, so kindly, you came and watched me rehearse an amateur orchestra, and I was conducting Walton One, and you came and sat next to the horns and probably frightened them to death. And then uh, I took you out for a drink. <laughs> uh, I took you out for a drink and, and asked you what you thought, and you, you gave me such wonderful advice. Um, you're, as you said, at the right at the beginning, that you've just started at the Sibelius Academy. Um, so I was going to sort of lump in two or three questions at once here in the fact that I'm sure over the years you've probably developed your own style of teaching. Do you teach them score marking? Because that's a question I ask every conductor. Is how do you learn a score? Do you mark a score? Do you write things in your score? I mean, I happen to know some of the things you're writing because I've used your scores at times. And a third one, which I've never asked anybody, is your son, Tavi, is now also a conductor. Very good, because I've watched him conduct online. Um, have you taught him, or has he sought your advice, or has he gone elsewhere? So although it's a very big global teaching question. You know, how do you teach? Do you mark up your scores? And has Tavi been taught by his dad? <laughs> so uh, first of all, uh, marking scores and style of teaching in general, um, I'm still at early stages uh, with, with my teaching and with forming a sort of relationship with my class. Mm. Uh, it's an international class. There are at the moment seven people and um, we are very happy to be able to work with an orchestra regularly in yeah. the Sibelius Academy. So it's an orchestra of students, smallish, but they get paid a little bit to support their sort of studies otherwise. and. And uh, it's just a great tool and great instrument to get, get to work with the same musicians over and over again and, and see them develop or not develop in some cases, maybe. Mm. And, and uh, that's a kind of um, wonderful way of, of getting through repertoire. Um, yes, I have sort of been thinking about what, what exactly to tell my students about <laughs> studying scores and marking scores. They all have their own ways and, and I think they're all pretty good at it also. So I, I haven't sort of imposed one certain way of doing it at the moment. Mm. What I want them to do is to be able to sort of, um, to be able to relay their ideas of the score with their hands and with their, with their speaking about music as well. Um, that, that's been my primary concern. And uh, rehearsal technique also, mm. when to speak, when not to speak, what to show with the hands, uh, what not to show with the hands, obvious things and so on. 
so it's kind of it's still forming in a way and and um yeah we'll we'll see where it ends up i'm, I'm sure it, uh, i will change quite often also it, it has to go a bit individually uh, yes for each student in a way and that's why i've started uh, a new thing in the class that i'm actually having private lessons with them as well mm. which is uh, sort of preparatory lessons where we can discuss either the piece that we're working at the moment or more general things or re rehearse sort of in a dry way basic beating techniques mm. uh, posture uh, breathing how to fix your gaze your your eyes into a distant point and at the same time keep doing something which is very close to you mm. all that sort of thing yes. can can be sort of practiced uh, as it were dry without an orchestra without even a piano or something and, and and I think that's really fruitful because uh, I can then sort of also relate to each student's problems mm. individually and 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 also to learn about their good sides. I'm also able to use them as assistants uh, when I conduct one of the Helsinki orchestras, which is great. They usually come all yeah. all of them as a group, and um, they have usually very very precise comments on rehearsals and how, how how sort of they think it should be balanced and all that it's very useful to have this dialogue also so it's not only that the professor teaches uh, the students but the students also teach the professor in a way and learn by doing that yeah. uh, that's really interesting methodology and uh, about your question about Tavi uh, I actually haven't taught him conducting I mean I've lived with him of course uh, for the 18 first years of his life, which seems already a long time ago, but mm. but he, he studied with my predecessor, Atso Almila, and also various uh, master classes of conducting, and uh, is completely a man of his own uh, in the profession. And, and I think we might have some physical similarities, obviously, because mm. we are related in that way, but, but um, and, and of course, I mean, he does ask sometimes yes. about the specific, specific thing in a score, or or how to make this and that work. And and of course, I uh, I'm really happy to help him. But mm. but I don't want to influence him too much because uh, he must be his own man. No yes, way. yeah, of course. It's funny you you mention about um, you know there will be similarities because of course you're flesh and blood. You know, um, I remember when I, it was actually when I was on the panel, of course in Russia, uh, there was a conductor there called Ken David Mazur, son of oh, Kurt yes. Mazur. And um, yeah. we all, we we're all waiting for our very first time to stand in front of Yorma and start conducting. And, and Ken David stood up and the minute he started, everybody in the room just looked at each other and went, it's, it's Kurt Mazur conducting. I mean, it was so similar. I mean, I think he was a lot taller than Kurt Mazur. You know, Ken David's a lot taller, a different body shape, but just that he'd taken on something from that. It was unmistakable. It really was unmistakable. Um, so I think some things yeah, like that are just un There are just things, yeah. yeah, things you can't really avoid and, and you shouldn't no, either no. because it's natural. I, I mean, I think personally, when I've watched back at videos that I've done, you know, conducting, I can see bits of rattle in there. I can see bits of you in there because you know I played mm. hundreds of concerts for you and Ra and Simon and also yeah. Andres. And I I think it's unavoidable. You see these things sort of you know wash. It's like osmosis. It, it will happen. Yeah, we all influence each other in a way. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's true. Yes, I do remember one thing you telling me about. 
I can't remember what I was conducting or what it was we were talking about one particular piece. And were you talking to me about muscle memory and just saying, you know, sometimes you've just got to conduct your way through a passage. And so your muscles get used to doing that in uh, doing those beat patterns or whatever else. Um, and I've stuck with that for, for years, uh, you know, anything particularly tricky, I will just practice it, practice it, practice it until it's in the muscles. It's yeah. like a sportsman. Uh, um, you know, a tennis player yes. would practice his serve or a golfer would practice his swing and we should do the same. Uh, this is a question I, I can ask you because, you know, I've known you for years and I consider you a friend. Is there anything the current Sakura Armo would go back to the younger Sakura Armo when he first started conducting and say, look, with my experience, you should maybe do this and not do that. Is there anything you, or are you, do you look back and think, do you know what, I'm the product now of all of these years of conducting and I'm so glad that I'm, I made those mistakes or I made those errors or I did that wrong or I did that right. What, what would you say to the young Zachary now if you could meet him? That's a really interesting question and, and a good one. I think I would, hmm, yes. I would maybe try to get him to focus on the right things if you know mm. what I mean. Uh, I have a feeling in my sort of memory and body that I, I wasted a lot of energy on things that were not essential mm. to the performance. And that's of course something you learn by doing the profession, by just conducting yes. years and years, hundreds of concerts and, and the most varied possible repertoire. And it's kind of, uh, it's maybe that also because in a way, now that I'm soon 55, I, I feel in my body I'm not the Sakari that was 30 years ago. Mm. I feel I'm, I'm sort of um, physically different, not necessarily worse, but I'm, I'm sort of less tense and, and also um, more able to adapt to, to physical difficulties of the profession. Mm. So I can stand through rehearsals with much more ease than I used to, because I, I think I used to spend a lot of energy on some things that were not maybe so necessary. Mm. So the thing about conducting is be there with the musicians, invite them to make music with you and listen carefully what they do. And that's about all you need. You don't need to play the orchestra so much. <laughs> it plays itself when you do the right thing. Brilliant. That's what I would say to my younger self. <laughs> what a brilliant answer. What a wonderful quote. Um, yeah, that, that's super. Zachary, it is 10 questions time. And I always start with the first two lumped together as one. What sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? I love many sounds of nature. I love the sound of waves washing onto a beach. I love the sounds of birds in the spring when they wake up and just create this fantastic symphony of, of, of sound and noises. I love the sound of wind in trees, leafy trees. Uh, a lot of the natural noises. Um, I hate the sound of a dentist's drill <laughs> more than anything else in the world. And bless the dentists who have cured my teeth. They are really important. People, I just can't stand the sound. So please do something about it if you can. 
it's also the kind of the high frequency and when it goes into your tooth the way it sounds inside your head that's for me the, the most terrible thing but i don't run away I'm, I'm there very still i just try to concentrate and focus on something else <laughs> the, the point is everybody who's just you've just described that so well that everybody can now hear that sound in their head <laughs> it's, it's Good. that yeah. high-pitched oh. vibrating in the head <laughs> yeah. um the next one if you had 24 hours free what would you spend it doing usually i like wandering around without any aim so if I'm in a city that I don't know, or even in a city I've known before, uh, I just like to walk around for hours and hours without any sort of particular aim. That's what I do. I do much the same, actually. I would go and have a walk, yeah. just yeah. and stare at the world, architecture, whatever, people walking past. Exactly. Yes, yeah. parks, people, architecture. Uh, I love going to food shops or, or market halls. I think they are fantastic places and they're so different in different countries also. Who would be a favorite conductor of yesteryear? Yevgeny Bradinsky for me. Mm. Uh, for the simple reason that he was able to always bring out the essence of the music he was conducting. Mm. No matter what style, what kind of... Uh, and there was something... There was something so simple yet so to the point mm. in his music making always mm. so I, I actually i adore him above any other conductors and of course there are many others to adore carlos kleiber is the obvious one because he was <laughs> such a musician mm. um but but yeah mravinsky would be my choice number one just as a hint to any listeners watch his rehearsals there are some around on youtube and although they are mostly in russian and not translated you can just feel the tension you can feel the sort of way of making music absolutely i've seen those because you've posted them on facebook or somewhere uh i do remember you also posting up whether it's a rehearsal or a concert uh the third movement of shostakovich eight with barely just his wrist and fingers moving and it's electric electric conducting um yeah brilliant choice but of course it's unfair towards all of us conductors because he actually conducted the same orchestra for more than 50 years yes that's right yeah, so i mean yeah. the results we see are the results of work of 30 35 40 years and uh i suppose he had pretty dictatorial powers yeah. to the players at the time and i've heard stories uh, but to me he comes across and of course this is purely coincidental and, and probably we're just seeing the best part of him but he comes across as a very humble and uh, as a conductor, a humble man and a conductor, I would really have loved to play for. And who would be a favorite current conductor? Current? Yes. My favorite current conductor. Hmm. Yes. Herbert Blomstedt. Mm. Mm. He's absolutely amazing. And he's still going strong despite of his very high age. You don't even realize his age. No. And you shouldn't. Mm -hmm. And he's, he's always become sort of during the decades I've heard and seen him, he's become just better and better all the time. What is the hardest work you have ever conducted? I give two works. First one is Messiaen's Oratorio Transfiguration de Notre Seigneur, mm -hmm. which I did the Finnish premiere of in Helsinki years ago. Uh, I just found it so hard. I'm a big lover of Messiaen's music. 
and I find all of his music so natural, but that was just Justin Ohm's too much <laughs> in a way. <laughs> and and, and uh, I think it, it, it is a masterpiece and it is a great work. Um, it has so many difficulties, not only just the, the sort of beating patterns are difficult, but also the sort of getting the, the right uh, elements in of, of elegance, lightness, depth, and, uh, and emotion without too much emotion. Mm. That's what I find really hard. The other piece that I found incredibly difficult to conduct, uh, and I've recorded it with the Royal Stockholm Phil and, and uh, also conducted it with the BBC Symphony, is the Nielsen's, Carl Nielsen's Sixth Symphony, mm. Mm. which is a kind of big middle finger to the whole music business <laughs> from Nielsen. I mean, it's 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 frivolous, it's humoristic, but it's also in a way incredibly sad and and uh, and in a way bitter music. Mm. And I love the piece to bits. I think it's a wonderful piece of music, uh, masterful, but it is very very hard to bring off. Mm. It's the only one I've never conducted. I've done all the other five, and I like you love it. Um, and as you say, it is the biggest middle finger. Um, also, frankly, to his colleagues in the string set, the violin parts are horrendously difficult to play. That was one of the very few pieces I ever practiced before a Monday morning rehearsal. Uh, most of the time you could turn up and read anything, but not Nielsen Six. Um, so yes, that's, that's is, a super it answer. Is, yeah. It is incredibly hard. And, and yet when it goes right, it sounds very easy, very natural. When traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? I always carry with me my own pillow because I'm very specific on what kind of pillow I can sleep with. And I found the ideal solution. I will never, ever leave it back home when I travel. Um, I'm going to ask, I'm going to mention something else that I do know about you. I could have changed that question was to something else, which is what item could you, you do you struggle to leave um, when you leave Cockola, which would be your car, <laughs> your, your, yes. your Citroen DS, which I speak, uh, how many weeks a year do you get to drive that? To, for the listener, Zachary has the, my dream vintage car, which is a Citroen DS from about the 1970s. 1973, yes. Oh, 1973 wow. it is. And yeah, at the moment, actually, I, I've got it uh, in southern Finland near Helsinki, where, mm. where we live. And, and it's now in a garage, obviously, because winter winter's coming. Yes. Um, so I usually take it out from the garage in April, maybe May, early May, and, and then drive with it uh, during the summer, not all the time, but... Yeah but when it's possible and uh, put it into the garage latest by the end of September. Yeah. So it avoids the sort of wet conditions of, of the Finnish winter and, and all that. But it's, it's still a nice, nice little hobby, hobby to have. Although I don't, I don't do anything to it myself. I, I leave that to the professionals. But it's such a beautiful object. Yes. Oh, they're, they're, they were ahead of their time. Um, they still look cool today. Hardly any cars from 1973 look cool today, but that no. one still does. It's a it's a thing of beauty. Um, and the ride quality is still amazing. Yes. No matter yeah. what you compare it with. Yeah. What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? I would love our work to be more uh, 
more dialogue and less telling people what to do. Mm. And of course, I see that this situation now at the moment is is very much a result of the way the history of the music business and orchestral business has come about, um, which is the players come and play and the conductor tells them what to do, basically. Mm. And of course, there are variations of this. There are people who do it in a sort of very skillful way that the players actually feel that they are in control. And, um, but I sometimes feel I'm sort of a little bit alone when I think about, especially when we think about the orchestra's sort of long-term mm. well-being and plans. I would like to have more dialogue, but in a way it's quite difficult because um, you're always touching about, uh, touching upon subjects that are kind of variable in, inside a community of musicians mm. and, and not everyone thinks the same and it's really hard to find a sort of common ground common opinion on on things how to go forward from this point mm. and and it's a thing that may, maybe comes from my background as an orchestra musician and and when i was in the orchestra i wanted to be very active and, and to be sort of influencing the way we work and maybe sometimes too much maybe i pissed some people off i don't know <laughs> but um but i'm i'm sort of always thinking that that musicians have so much knowledge and so much sort of inside feeling about things and and that's not used properly by by orchestras mm. because you're just telling them what to do instead of harnessing their own energy that's so true you know that there's this mass of wisdom accumulated across all of the players in the orchestra and more often than not you either have the attitude of well tell us what to do then mr conductor or mrs conductor or yeah. or, or as you say you know th there are characters who, who want to sort of um be involved more but they're either shouted down or that or that you know that being a character mm -hmm. is frowned upon that you know you you know, you, why is he asking another question? Why is she saying that again? You know, that sort of thing. Um, and I suppose it's the difficult thing of trying to have a, you know, a small group mentality of, let's say, a dozen musicians where everybody does have input and then putting that into a group of 80. And that's, that's quite difficult to achieve. But wouldn't it be lovely if he could? Yeah, absolutely. And one, one more thing I would like to change. Uh, and I guess it's changing gradually. I, I'm really happy to see more and more female conductors mm. come onto the podium. I think it still happens too slowly. Um, I have quite a number of female students who are all doing very, very well and have sort of, I think, great possibilities in the future to, to be in important places. Um, but I would sort of like organizations, orchestras, opera houses, what have you, to, to have more courage and more also so just to think about uh, employing female conductors in, mm. in important occasions and concerts. Mm. Those are the two main things that are on, on my mind at the moment. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Organic farming of vegetables and perhaps also a limited number of animals. Mm -hmm. Thinking about chicken or sheep, but nothing too big or too uh, demanding. Uh, but yes, uh, I really like uh, the idea of growing your own food. Mm. Maybe not 
not for for sale, not for living, but but just for your own use. And do you? And if that's considered a profession, then yes, yes, especially now in lockdown time. Yeah. Uh, we have together with my wife, Anu, we have uh, grown quite a lot of our own vegetables and, and it's been a fantastic thing to do. I mean, we've had some some things already in the previous years, but now we've really had the time to concentrate on that. And, and yes, the harvest was is quite a nice thing to do once you get through all the all the work of of seeing it grow and wondering whether it will ever grow. Then when something grows, it's fantastic. And then you eat it and it tastes yours. <laughs> well, maybe that's the perfect lead-in to the final question, which is, if the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? Well, thinking about where I am at the moment when we're doing this interview, Mike, I think it would be a hearty Italian pasta dish with a decent glass of maybe Brunello di Mondalcino or something like that. Mm. A good Italian red wine. That sounds wonderful. Zachary, it's been a real, real joy to talk to you again and to see you via Zoom. Um, and I hope that in the very near future, we can see each other again in the flesh and uh, sit down as we've done in the past over a beer and have a good old chat. Thank you. That would be absolutely fantastic. And thank you, Mike. It's been a fantastic to talk to you and to go through all these questions and emotions and, and memories and what have you. A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal, with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat to an English conductor who, like Zachary Oromo, shot to fame in 1998, when he took part in the BBC Young Musician Conductors Workshop, going on to become the assistant conductor of the BBC Philharmonic. His career since then has been truly international, conducting in concert halls and opera houses across the globe. Until then, bye-bye.